0: Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. All the focus over the past month and a half has been on the war in Gaza and Israel's northern border and the devastating toll it has taken both on Israelis and on Palestinians. While it's been going on, there has been less of a focus on where the conflict normally plays out on a daily basis the West Bank, but that hardly means that things are quite the opposite. On today's podcast, Hagar Shazaf, Haaretz's West Bank correspondent, will fill us in on the numerous developments there and the worrying trends and how they can't be ignored because the fate of the war and of both peoples are inextricably linked to their outcomes. My conversation with Hagar, coming up. Hi, Hagar. Thanks for coming in. Hi, thank you for having me. Last time you were on this podcast, we were talking about how during the protests against the judicial coup, remember that? Yeah, I do. (laughs) Uh, and the focus on extreme settler elements in the government that was fighting for the judicial coup, namely National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir and Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich, because of them, because of their influence, the Israeli public was finally focusing their attention on the West Bank and specifically on settler violence. Then on October 7th, the war happened. You have been reporting on events nonstop in the West Bank, but things that would otherwise be making lead headlines here have been buried under the dramatic events of the war. Can you give us an overview of how the war has affected what's been going on in the West Bank?
1: Right. The number of Palestinians who were killed by the army just since October 7 in the West Bank is above 200. Uh, There have been mass uh, arrests, uh, both of people that the army suspects are affiliated with Hamas, but also with other groups. Um, We have seen increased settler violence, and the level of settler violence was already very high before the war, uh, which has resulted often in uh, villages that just evacuated, self-evacuated themselves following threats and violence and restrictions of movement by the army uh, also is making the lives of Palestinians extremely difficult. Uh, In some places like Hebron, there is basically curfew. The olive harvest is underway and we have seen army Restrictions and settler violence that is targeting specifically people trying to pick olives.
0: Okay, we'll get into each of those topics uh, in depth. But first, let's start with the day of October 7th. We all remember where we were on October 7th. And you started reporting at that time on the uh, detention of Gazans who found themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time, who are Gazan workers inside israel um how did that play out for you what was october 7th like for you as somebody who reports on the west bank and to a certain extent the movements of gazans inside uh, israel proper
1: right so i mean obviously first of all the october 7th itself was i was pretty much like every other israeli uh kind of trying to like wrap my head around what's happening and uh you know, people that I know in the Gaza envelope. So October 7th itself was, you know, (laughs) I was maybe not so much a West Bank reporter, just another Israeli worried about what's happening. Um, But then one of the first things that happened was that Israel canceled the work permits of thousands of Gazans who had work permits in Israel up until the war. And on that Saturday, thousands of them were in Israel. So in the first couple of days, many of them uh, either tried to kind of like, you know, stay where they are, not go out of the houses where they s- slept in, because many of them sleep and actually had permits to sleep in Israel up until their permits got canceled. Um, some of them uh, tried to reach the West Bank, kind of thinking and knowing that the situation in Israel will be unsafe for them, and many have reached the West Bank. But then, quite soon after, Israel started detaining Gazans who either tried to cross to the West Bank, but also, um, you know, Israeli police did, like, uh, detention uh, operations to locate them and bring them to detention. Um, Thing is, most of them, were not suspected of anything, right? They were just detained basically because their permits were canceled. So they were not brought in front of a judge. There was no you know, s- official suspicion against them. Um, they were uh, detained in two military bases. One is Ofer, where the uh, infamous uh, prison is, um, and uh, the other is Anatot, which is just it's a military base, um I began soon after to get all sorts of tips that things especially in Anatot but also off uh, were really bad um, in the sense that like conditions were very harsh and that people were beaten and mistreated etc etc um, so I began looking into that and what I found out um, after a few weeks was that Two Gazan workers uh, died while in detention. Um, they were both, as far as I was able to understand, they were both um, ill before they uh, were detained. One of them had uh, diabetes. Uh, the other, according to Palestinian media, they later uh, published that he was a cancer pa- patient. And... Um, I actually spoke to the family of uh, the person who had diabetes and died. They did not know that he died prior to my report. Uh So I did not publish his name at first, um, but then they actually contacted me and asked that I confirm uh, that it was him who died. And I had (laughs) the very unpleasant and very unfortunate role. I guess, of confirming to the family that he died. And he was a diabetes patient, but, you know, he just needed his... Insulin. Yeah, his insulin. so he basically died because no one gave him, you know, his medicine. And according to testimonies, he did ask for it. I think we are yet to, like, fully understand what happened
0: there exactly. So the detainees there not in prison anymore. They're in the West Bank. They got sent They sent back to Gaza. They, where are they?
1: Most of those who were detained in uh, Anatol Torofer in Israel were sent back to Gaza. By the way, they were sent back without their belongings, their money, their IDs. Everything is still held by Israel. I asked the military about it and basically just got a response saying they were released according to like the government's decision. Some of them, a very small number, um, was still held. Um, I mean, I think we obviously have to note that there is some suspicion that some Gazan workers were spying, were spying, you know, cooperated with Hamas prior to uh, October 7. But basically, most of, we- of the people who were detained were released to Gaza. I know there are some that are still in the West Bank.
0: So shifting to the West Bank itself and the situation there, you mentioned in your overview the olive harvest. It's a time of year where tensions anyway tend to run high because Palestinians want access to their land, to the olive grove, so they can harvest the olives, which is viewed by settlers as some sort of danger or provocation because the vineyards are close to the settlements, or at least that's the reason that they're giving how is this year different because of the war? Is it worse? Uh, what have you seen happening?
1: So basically the olive harvest season is always, as you said, a season where like tensions run high and there are quite often uh, violent uh, events. Mostly settlers attacking Palestinians who are out picking their olives. Um, you know, the olive groves, some of them are in the areas of settlements. Others are... Just you know in across like big roads, uh some of them are close to the Palestinian villages. you know there are like olive trees all all over the west bank, so this year, what we have seen is a campaign against the olive harvest by a number of elements within the settler movement, one of them, and I think the main thing is you know uh what we call a uh, hilltop um youth people (laughs) who are... um, Some young, some not so young. Some young, some not so young. um, Who basically um, come to Palestinians who are picking their olives, threatening them, attacking them, telling them, don't come here anymore. Um, We have seen uh, specifically a focus um, against Palestinians that are picking olives uh, near main roads, so there is, there are a bunch of like WhatsApp groups that are, um, basically used to like um, decimate uh, you know uh, uh, messages uh, among uh, extreme settlers, and I have seen again and again you know messages of olive pickers on this specific location. They are like sending Google Map location and like go and tell them to go. And, you know, I, I, I spoke to someone who was, like, beaten by a settler and was told, like, don't come here, uh, you can't be here, blah, blah, blah. And then what happened in many of these places is that people are just too afraid to go out and pick their olives. So some of the people I spoke with said that they basically gave up. They are not going out this year. Um, so you have that. You reported on leaflets being put on cars? Right. So specifically, actually, in, in Deir Istia, People were picking olives like near the main road, and they were beaten. And then when they went back to their cars, they found that a leaflet was put there, saying something like, uh, "Get ready for the big Nakba," and you know, kind of threatening them. It's your last chance. You need to evacuate to Jordan, or I'm paraphrasing. So yeah, so a lot of threatening messages and violence. And I spoke of a campaign because at the same time, what you have is politicians, um, one of them being, you know, our finance minister, Bitzal Smotrich, who is also the minister in charge, basically, of uh, West Bank policy. Uh, and he actually sent a letter to um, the defense minister, of Galant, saying that he requests that the army will not approve Palestinians uh, to pick olives Near settlements. Now, what do you mean by near settlements? That's also, you know, it could be a very broad uh, definition. And P- Palestinians have all, you know, right to pick olives <laughs> wherever they want, obviously. Um, and also near uh, near roads. And uh, there is a member of Knesset called Nitzvi Sukkot. It's pretty well known. He's a settler from Mitzharu and I spoke to him because he also sent this like similar letter to the defense minister and I asked him why you know and what he said is you know we're basically afraid that like palestinians like under kind of like the excuse of the olive harvest will spy on Uh, settlement.
0: And that's clearly sort of a reference or, or, you know, pushing on what's a sensitive nerve now in Israel, which is feeling that, you know, Gazan workers spied and that's how, you know, helped lead to October 7th. So it's a... Or not
1: only Gazan workers. I don't know, like we're yet to know, you know, what mm -hmm. is like the main uh, thing that happened. But but, yeah, in general, this like... Palestinians being a fifth
0: column and who are, you know, helping the enemy, right?
1: Yeah. So you have that. And it has actually been quite effective because we are seeing although they are not saying it officially we are seeing the army preventing in many cases not always but preventing in many cases palestinians from actually coming and harvesting their land again in dir eastia um they have lands that are near like an outpost that was you know established just like Last June, (laughs) you know, it's their lands. And since the war started, the settlers there basically blocked the road, destroyed the road leading to the land and blocked it. And then, you know, residents said that that again and again, they tried coming there and soldiers would come, you know, down from from the outpost because outposts are always, you know, or not always, but often like on top um, and would tell them you can't be here. Why? Because of the war. (laughs) So, you know, and I spoke with the mayor of uh, Turmus Aya, which is a town that uh, rose to the headlines around um, uh, last June because there was a severe settler attack in it. I spoke with him and I asked him, like, do people go out? to pick olives, because, you know, Aya is quite close to a settlement called Chilo and a bunch of other outposts that are extremely violent. Um, and he said no. He said, like, basically, like, his estimation was that, like, 80% of the people don't go out this year. Um, so you see that affecting, you know, this season very much. It was supposed, to my, to my uh, very uh limited knowledge of uh, agriculture. Uh, I understand this year was supposed to be like, kind of like um, a small olive picking season in general.
0: So yeah, people are basically afraid not going out. A more extensive reaction to what's been going on in the West Bank that you've reported on to a certain extent, our colleague Gidon Levy has reported on, is not exactly self-evacuation, but voluntary relocation. Palestinians actually picking up and moving around as a result of some of this pressure, whether it's harvesting, whether it's, like you said, the blocking of roads. Can you tell me about that? Why are some Palestinians in the West Bank moving of their own volition what pressures are driving them to it right
1: so um what you're referring to is a phenomenon that we've actually seen uh, over the past uh I think year in general there and there has been an increase since January and now it's basically a tsunami of small herding communities like small villages um that are basically yeah self evacuating or you know, are basically
0: displaced. Gidon Levy counted sixteen. I don't know exactly. So according how many to
1: Betzalel, so the Betzalel data mm-hmm. is sixteen of such communities that you know basically self-evacuated since the beginning of the war, uh, which uh, sums up to like eight hundred seventy-four uh, people, mm-hmm. which is a lot of people. Um, five of these communities are in South Hebron Hills alone. Um, now, what happens is that these communities, first of all, um, are uh, traditionally, but also practically, um, their livelihood is based on uh, livestock. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, in order to do it, in order to maintain their livelihood, they need big spaces to, like, herd uh, their livestock. Um, And throughout the years, with the establishment of, um, of more and more outposts, they just lost a lot of land um because you know settlers and the army is just restricting their movement very very badly so we have seen this trend of communities that are basically you know they're they just leave and they basically um uh go and live in like other places that are um farther away from outposts because again for years they have been suffering from threats and violence and harassment from these outposts. Uh, and very often, you know, this sort of like displacement or self-evacuation, however you want to call it, changes dramatically their lifestyle because suddenly they just, they, they can't herd. Mm-hmm. So they lose, you know, their source of income. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's... And just the fact that they have to like you know leave their homes is obviously very dramatic but what we have seen since the war started and this you know is something that i can't just from you know observing the intensity of what happened since October seventh, I cannot help but think that there is something systematic happening here, because for me, in my experience as a reporter who you know gets like calls from sources um, since October seventh, and especially over like you know uh, the first two weeks, just the number of calls that I was getting from Palestinians and Israeli activists, you know, of uh, settlers called and threatened us. Settlers come on a daily basis, even if a a number of times a day they're armed. Um, Some of them were actually recruited to the army as reservists, which we will, I guess, touch upon in a moment. Um, And, you know, they come, they threaten us, they beat us. They tell us we have one day to leave. Two days to leave. Five hours. They uh, would uh, say that they are calling from the Shabak, from the secret services, or from the police. They were not police. They were not secret services. I, I don't know if it's like possible to describe I, how dramatic it is. And the fact, I can say that I obviously like tried to inform the Israeli authorities. The Israeli authorities, for years and years, it's a very very well known thing. You know, the Israeli authorities. Just basically, don't really act uh, to protect uh, Palestinians. Um, they don't see it at, as one of their main, you know, objectives in the West Bank. No matter what they say, they just don't. Um, and I can tell you that in in this like week or two, when I received so many calls and so many things, you know, I would like send requests for response or you know from from the army. I didn't see any, like, action, anything being done, you know. They would say maybe, you know, oh, we're looking into that, We're, we're checking, blah, blah, blah. But then nothing would happen, you know. At the end of the day, like, if they wanted to protect these communities, they could have. Everybody knows who these settlers are. The police normally asks if the person filed a complaint. Palestinians are done filing complaints I know that because I speak with people and I see how I've been a West Bank reporter over the past four years I see how less and less people tell me they even bother to go and we know what are the like rates of you know cases being closed the Israeli police basically does not see its role as even investigating in cases of killing of Palestinians by civilians I covered cases we spoke about Hawara about like the big Hawara attack back in February, I think. And just as an example, there was a person there who was killed, a Palestinian, um, apparently by a settler, because that's what the family and, you know, witnesses said. And the police, when I, you know, approached the police and asked, what about an investigation? They actually said, no one filed a complaint. No, I live in Israel. I know when someone is killed here, or murdered here, you don't wait for the family to come and submit a complaint.
0: So talking about, you know, these people claim to be the Shabak, but they're not the Shabak. But let's talk in general about the blurring of lines between the actual military and the actual authorities and some of the settler groups who now, you know, we have have high connections uh, in the government. It's been getting a lot of publicity. National Security Minister Itamar ben use of the war to promote an agenda he's had for a long time, which is to get more guns in the hands of more Jewish civilians, particularly, but not exclusively in the West Bank, and also to set up citizen militias. So talk to me about your reaction to what you saw as the purpose of the loosening of restrictions on gun ownership uh, by Ben Gvir's office. And you've also reported on a new plan to recruit settlers who have not done military service and to be used as regional defense militiamen in their area of residence after a very brief training period. Can you talk about those two things? So, I think the most relevant uh, thing to talk
1: about when we talk about the West Bank is actually less the bankville stuff, more um you know the fact that the military has been handing out a lot of uh, military weapons to settlers. so the last time I checked, which was actually almost a month ago, so the data is probably higher, is uh, showed that the army handed out about eight thousand military weapons to settlers in the West Bank, uh, specifically to settlers who serve as reservists and as people in the like, first response groups of the settlements. So what we have seen is when the war first broke, um, you know, there was a lot of the military forces were actually in the West Bank. Right. There was a lot of criticism about it, some specifically in Hawara, because, you know, Hawara has been, uh, you know, in the center of a lot of like violent events from both sides. So quite a lot of uh, like a lot of military uh, forces were there. Then the war started. What the army did was to take many of the soldiers who are regular soldiers, uh, you know, like 18, 19, 20 Um, from the West Bank to either the South or the North. And then it had to kind of like fill the ranks. So what it did was bring mostly reservists in, because many Israelis went to reserve. And what you have now in the West Bank is very often these reservists, not exclusively, obviously, but very often they're settlers themselves. So you have, you know, settlers from the Har settlement, um, that are being deployed in Hawara, which is like down the road. Um, and I think that has, um, you know, influenced the situation there because, again, like the blurring of the lines. They can
0: be wearing uniforms while they're acting as settlers and not as soldiers. So basically, Palestinians
1: are reporting the fact that, you know, first of all, they they can't tell. They can't tell whether someone is a settler or a soldier very often you have people who wear like military trousers but then their shirt will be like regular so so that blaring which also existed before the war uh is now completely like no one can tell anymore and i've reported on one like specific case that was pretty horrible that happened right when the war started in a place called Wadi Asik, which is actually a community that evacuated after numerous threats and violence. And I reported on a case where Palestinians and Israelis actually, who came to kind of help that community uh, take their stuff and, you know, pack up, were stopped by a group of soldiers and settlers like a mixed group um and the palestinians were basically held for hours going through very bad physical violence they described people like um putting like cigarette burns on their bodies and a certain like a uh, case where someone actually tried to sexually assault one of them and they were they, they, they peed on them. You know, like really horrid stuff. The soldiers were part of a unit called Zfara Midbar, which is a unit that was formed a number of years ago that is specifically composed of hilltop youth who come from very ideological background and some of them have history of being violent towards Palestinians now have weapons and authority right. over Palestinians. It has worsened very 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 much since the war started
0: and the wider scale of war and conflict. Um, we've seen, I would say, an intensification, I guess, of the nature of the raids that the IDF has made into some of the enclaves where they believe, you know, we're at war with Hamas and where they believe that there are Hamas elements or Hamas fighters or any kind of hostile elements, um, including uh, firing from the air in the West Bank, which before last spring hadn't happened since the days of the Second Intifada in the early 2000s. And we've seen a lot of not only detainees, but casualties. Um, does it feel like a war situation there now? Right.
1: So the tensions have like increased very much. Not all of the detained, even the army suspects, are like Hamas-affiliated. And I think we have seen an intensification of the raids. Over 200 Palestinians were killed in the West Bank only since the war started. So the number of since the beginning of the year is, like, higher. According to the military, many of them were armed, uh, either with weapons uh, or with explosives. Um, too, I, I, I can say, like, honestly, I don't have a way to verify it. The number of detentions in the West Bank is extremely high. According to the IDF, since the war started, uh, over 1,800 Palestinians were detained. Um, the army says that around 1,000 are affiliated with Hamas. We have also seen, you know, operations where the army is destroying, like, roads, you know, in the Jenin refugee camp or the Tulkarem refugee camp, um, saying that they're doing it because, you know, ar- beneath these roads, often there are IEDs. Um, but you do see, like, you know, photos of massive destruction in the West Bank. And as you mentioned, um, we have seen uh you know military use of of offensive drones or offensive warplanes in the West Bank, which until very recently was something rare that caught you know main main headlines and now it has become regular and I think with the detention thing like I spent a couple of hours last week in the author military court because Palestinians in the West Bank. When they are being detained by Israel, they are not brought in front of a civilian court, but rather in front of like a military court. And because, or since the war started, you know, first um, first court session for a detainee is after eight days, and it's not necessarily just people who are suspected of, you know, being Hamas members or whatever. They can be suspected of stuff that don't even have, you know, very obvious connection to the war but then only after eight days. So, you know, just imagine someone who, you know, was detained for something. Maybe it's unjustified. I mean, you know, it's only natural that some of these things are unjustified, but they still have to uh, spend eight days since they first see a judge. And when I spoke with the lawyers there, um, they said that, you know, many people um, are being uh, transferred to administrative detention, for things that in the past you wouldn't receive uh, administrative detention. And that in general, you know, uh, because we're in a war, um, judges are not willing to, like, release anybody. So, you know, court session in offer right now are very, very long. Like, it's from the morning till the evening. We're yet to, like, understand, I think, exactly um, the effect of all of that on the reality in the West Bank in the longer term.
0: To wrap up, I mean, you're not a diplomatic correspondent, <laughs> but um, one place that has been paying attention to what's going on in the West Bank has been in the White House, the Biden administration, as he's given Israel, you know, relatively um, free reign to prosecute its war in Gaza and on the northern border. He's been President Biden has been issuing warnings about settler violence and about the position of the Palestinian Authority, worried about their financial position, worried about their strength as this military um, uh, tension continues in the West Bank. And to the extent that people are talking about the day after the war, they're theorizing that who's going to be in charge of Gaza? Will Israel reoccupy Gaza? Will there be settlements in Gaza? Will they hand it over to the international community? You hear Very frequently, oh, well, the Palestinian Authority will take over in Gaza again, as it did before the violent um, Hamas control began in 2007. As someone who's on the ground in the West Bank, what do you think of that from what you see of the Palestinian Authority? Are they living in reality when they say, oh, yeah, the Palestinian Authority will be in charge of Gaza, too? First of
1: all, the fact that Biden has spoken again and again for a number of times about, you know, the issue of settler violence and how it affects the situation in the West Bank and in general, I think, was heard loud and clear in Israel. Um, and actually, I think the settlers um, are quite stressed about it. I mean, I know that a number of like settler officials are trying to like uh, do like a counter campaign. No claiming that the use of the term settler violence is offensive, but also like untrue and portrays an untrue image, whereas most of the violence comes from Palestinians. So I think it's something that like has been heard in Israel. Um, we have seen that the army issued a number uh, of uh, administrative uh, detention orders against uh, Jewish settlers as well. Um, so yeah maybe that will help a bit uh that's possible to your question or to what you said about uh you know the palestinian authority um i mean i think we all know and obviously the american administration knows how unpopular the palestinian authority is in the west bank and in gaza um, you know like the there the are polls um, saying that if there would have been um, an election today, uh, Abbas would receive 37% of the vote, while Haniya would get f- 58%. Haniya is Hamas. Hania is Hamas. That's for the West Bank and Gaza, like, like together. So in that sense, um, it's maybe naive or a bit strange to think of the Palestinian Authority as, you know, the right alternative. The right alternative or something that would be perceived as legitimate by, you know, the Palestinian people uh, because it's not really perceived uh, as legitimate in the West Bank where it's in power right now. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I don't know. I guess uh, we'll have to wait and see how things play out.
0: Well, that's what we've been saying all through this war. Every single day, (laughs) we wake (laughs) up in the morning and say, well, we'll wait and see uh, what happens today. But I think it's really important to have had you um, uh, shine a light in detail of what's going on in the West Bank. Again, when most of the attention of the world and of Israelis has been uh, has been focused elsewhere and how much can happen when the attention is focused elsewhere. Hagar, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Hagar Shazaf, to my producer, Avri Rosensvi and my editor, Nahara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan Sommer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv.